Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Hey everybody, welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen and I am your host and I am glad you're with us today. I am not really with you today. I mean, I am, but I'm actually back. I'm not in studio. I'm back in quarantine. For those of you who are counting, apparently COVID's still a real thing. I think this is my fourth quarantine. So one of the, yeah, one of the liabilities of having uh, social friends, teenagers, and a coworker got me, got me this time. So if I sound a little bit off, it's because I am. I don't have my my cool swanky mic- microphone, uh, but it doesn't matter because our guest today does have a cool swanky microphone. All the way from South Dakota, Father Scott Trainer, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jim. Great to be with you and with our listeners today with my swanky microphone. Yeah, swanky microphone. So, Father, today we want to talk about we're both fans of a book, uh, incidentally, Archbishop George Lucas uh, here in Omaha is also a fan of the book, uh, gave it to all the priests for Christmas, uh, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. Uh, We want to talk about that today, but first, this is your first time on the podcast. Tell everybody a little bit, like, tell everyone your story, right? How'd you first encounter Jesus? How'd you get here? Yeah, so I was born at a very early age. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yes. Versus born I'm, at the late age. So I was born to an unwed college student at the University of Minnesota in September, okay. uh, September 9th, 1971. Uh, and my birth mom placed me for adoption. And my parents, after eight weeks to make sure I was healthy enough to go home through the adoption agency, John and Donna, a trainer, took me home. And I was baptized in the Catholic Church. Uh, I have two, I have an older brother and an older sister who are also adopted. And uh, so it was raised in the Catholic Church, 12 years of Catholic school. Uh, I would say that uh, while we were always a Sunday mass going family, uh, I was, I just did that because that's what our family did until about the time I got my driver's license. Mm. And then I started sneaking around about such things. So by the time I went off to Iowa State uh, for college, I had a Navy scholarship. My big plan for my life was to be uh, a Navy pilot. Uh, and had my four-year scholarship, and I took it to Iowa State. I did not set foot in the Newman Center, I'm sorry to say, at mm-hmm. Iowa State my entire freshman year. Uh, that changed a little bit my sophomore year because there was a girl I was interested in dating, and she was a churchgoer. So uh, I'd actually met her the previous spring, knew she was coming to Iowa State. So beginning of my sophomore year, I found the Newman Center. I went to Sunday Mass, and I sat down. And... Uh, I just felt, and it wasn't for any lack of hospitality, they were super nice, super hospitable people, but I felt during that mass, like I didn't belong. Mm. And that kind of pierced me a little bit. Like what's going on in my life that I don't feel like I don't belong at a Sunday mass. I mean, had anyone asked me, oh, are you Catholic? Of course I'm Catholic. What do you go to church? Eh, Not really. And I wouldn't have really seen much of a, a contradiction in that. But I felt uh, at that mass, uh, when I went back after not having gone to mass for a while, like I didn't belong. And that just sort of bothered me. Well, um, through that relationship, uh, I met a number of wonderful committed Christian people who other fellow college students. 
And uh, these were mostly non-denominational evangelical friends. So friends of this girl I started dating. And uh, she, they were like joyful people. Uh, and this really grabbed my attention. I was a pretty <laughs> cynical person at the time. Uh, I was successful, but I wasn't like joyful. And a lot of boredom kind of been there, done that, jadedness, maybe uh, cynicism mm -hmm. a little bit. That was really different with this group of friends. So my sophomore year at Iowa State, I would say I had uh, my fraternity friends, I had my engineering friends, I had my Navy friends, and then I had these Christian friends mm -hmm. and on fire Christian friends who were joyful. And at different times, I just sort of ask one or another of them, like, what's your deal? You know, there's something different about you. And to a person, they asked me if I had a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I had no idea what to make of that question. What do you uh, mean? Like, yeah, I, I, I'm 12 years of Catholic school. I got A's in religion. I don't think that's what you're asking. Uh, but I will say with honesty that I think at that time, I wouldn't have really even understood what the question meant. What does it even mean to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, thanks be to God for these good people in my life. Uh, they just encouraged me in all simplicity, like, you know, Scott, Jesus loves you very much. If you want to grow in friendship with him, why don't you just like take up the Bible, read a little passage in the gospel somewhere, and then just talk to Jesus like you talk to a trusted friend about whatever comes up on your mind. I was, uh, I was curious about them at that point uh, in my life, like what's different about them, but I was not really open to um, following their that, suggestion. I, I'm not that curious. Uh, yeah, right. And that really changed for me uh, one Friday in November. I had had a really lousy uh, couple weeks and I had lots of fun planned for a Friday night. And uh, all my plans got blown up. My friends flaked out on me. My car broke down. Couldn't do any of the things I planned to do. So I'm like stuck at home on a Friday night feeling sorry for myself. And I just kept hearing kind of in my memory, these different conversations where friends were like, oh, read something in the gospel, talk to Jesus like you'd talk to a trusted friend. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, well, I got nothing better to do tonight. So I did. And uh, I opened up the gospel. It happened to be the healing of Bartimaeus. Uh, and yeah. I read that and didn't really know what to make of it. And, uh, but this was the first time like I intentionally sat down as a grown-up to talk to God. I'd never really done that previously. And I was so, uh, I just love remembering back of this because I just remember how like hesitating and sheepish I was about it. It was like, um, God, uh, sir, uh, if you're out there, uh, sorry to bother you. I'm sure you have many other more important things to do, but it's Scott Trainer hey, here. Scott, and uh, hey, totally. Just so, just so sheepish. And happy, happy birthday. I'm sorry. I mean, I haven't talked to you since right. Christmas. It's been a while. Things are fine. But, and so I really just had no idea what to do, but okay, just talk to Jesus like you'd talk to a trusted friend. And honestly, what came to mind was um, just, you know, some of the tough things I'd gone through in that last two weeks. So I just started talking to God like that. And I don't know if I did this for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, uh, but I do know when I was finished, uh, something had really changed. Like I didn't feel sorry for myself anymore. I wasn't in a lousy and self-pitying mood. Uh, I felt basically at peace. I wasn't bouncing off the walls with joy or anything, but I, I felt a lot better. Like a, a burden had definitely been lifted. Mm -hmm. And that I couldn't find my Christian friends fast enough to see like whatever, what other like magic tricks they knew. Like that was amazing. 
what else you got for me? Uh, so I definitely went from uh, curiosity to openness for sure. And seeking, awesome. I was quite into seeking. So sophomore year, I'm going back to church regularly uh, from time to time, not super frequently. I would take out my Bible and, and do this again. And one thing kind of led to another. So I got to the end of my sophomore year and I had a month out in San Diego with the Navy doing some flight training. Uh, I had August with my fraternity to do some things. I was the uh, like president-elect of my fraternity, so I was supposed to go down to Arizona for two weeks of meetings, which is like it was just an all-expense-paid two-week party down in Arizona. That's what that was supposed to be. And then I had July with nothing to do, so I didn't really want to hang out home for a month. Uh, um, didn't need to earn money. Wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then I had this memory of an experience I had in high school. So. When I was in high school, went to a parish in the Twin Cities uh, where my family went, and I got very involved in the youth group. Now, like I said, after I got my driver's license, I, I wasn't really going to church, but I would definitely show up at youth group stuff. And that was part of my plan to get into the Naval Academy or get an ROTC scholarship, right? It's a good leadership thing. Check those boxes. Right. And it was fun people, good friends. We did a lot of fun activities. Free food. Yep. All the good things. So our youth minister brought us up to a young life camp called Camp Castaway. It's up in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota as campers that junior year of high school. And at Camp Castaway, you have like, I don't know, 150 juniors from all over the country who come to Camp Castaway. During the day, you do wacky Olympics. There's water skiing, parasailing. They have the zip line tower into the lake. Lots of fun. And at night, at night, uh, there's a very effective presentation of the basic gospel message, right? And I had a really good experience as a junior in high school. It didn't really go anywhere at that time, but there were seeds that were planted for sure. Mm -hmm. And one of those seeds was remembering here at the end of my sophomore year of college, like, oh, all the people who like mowed the lawn and cooked our food and cleaned the cabins, they volunteered for a month. Maybe I can volunteer in July up at Castaway. So I called up Castaway. I uh, said, hey, I have July open. Do you need anyone? They're like, nah, we hired our staff six months ago. I'm like, come on, I don't eat much. I'll do anything. I'll scrub the sidewalks. Father, on. was that a fib? I don't eat much. I didn't eat like much. That. No, very skinny. Very, very, very skinny. Naval, yeah. Yeah. Naval and uh, so anyways, uh, it just worked out that their sound and light tech for the month that had been lined up for July canceled that morning. And so halfway through the conversation, the lady from Castaway is like, oh, what are you doing in college? I'm like, I'm studying computer engineering. She says, oh, could you like plug in a PA system then? I'm like, Mm, if you have a manual, I think maybe, I think I can. So it just worked out. And that was a life-changing month. Um, being with the campers, like most people do their jobs at Castaway and then disappear when the campers show up until mm -hmm. the end of the week where there's a big reveal. But our job with the two video ladies was to actually be with the campers for all their activities, including that amazing presenter who's uh, presenting the gospel message each night over the, the course of the camp. And uh, something happened for me Monday of the third week of the month I was up there. I just woke up in the morning. It was staff day, kind of between camps. And my waking thoughts were, God has a plan for my life. That's how I'm going to be most happy. And I've never asked God what that plan is. And I should. And I want to. And the more I thought about it, the happier I was becoming. To the point where I think by lunchtime, I was pretty much floating around Camp Castaway. I think it was actual levitation. I didn't know what that was at the time, but I'm pretty sure that was happening. At lunchtime, get, get this. So I wake up with those thoughts. No one had told me those things. Mm -hmm. That wasn't something I had heard or read. It was just clear as a bell to me when I woke up that morning, those things were true. 
And then at lunch, this guy from the grounds crew, his name was Skinny, uh, comes up and he's like, hey, is your name Scott? I'm like, yeah, Skinny, yeah. And he says, I think you're supposed to have this. And he hands me a sheet of paper. Now Skinny, it turns out, is a Calvinist. And his Calvinist mom has sent him a care package that arrived that morning. He unpacks it and he's moved in the Holy Spirit to hand me this sheet. It is the prayer of Cardinal Newman. The prayer of Cardinal Newman says, God has created me for some particular purpose. He's entrusted to me a task. He's not entrusted to another. I may not know that purpose in this life, but I will be told it in the next. Like that prayer. And I'm like, yeah, which is not real common in Calvinist circles. No, it is not. For those of you who aren't sure what that means. That's wow. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, the heavens open. It's true. God does have a plan for my life. And I'm like, this is great. So the rest of my time at Castro, I'm, I'm talking to my friends. I'm like, this is what God's doing in my life. I know he has a plan. I don't know what it is. What should I do? And, he, and they're like, oh, Scott, you got to go do mission work. And I'm like, what? Great. I'll do it. What, what's mission work? <laughs> and they're like, oh, you know, you build like huts or dig wells down in Latin America. I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to do that. So the end of the month comes, I'm down at Castaway. My mom and her sister, my aunt Kathy, come pick me up. And we're driving home. Kathy's really interested in all I did with the Navy and my flight training. So I'm telling her about the fun things I did. And she said, at one point, or an hour into this, she says, oh, well, what's happening next summer with the Navy, Scott? And I kind of look at my mom, who's in the passenger seat. I'm like, well, Kath, uh, I'm not sure there's going to be a next summer with the Navy. And if looks could kill, I would have been vaporized. My mom's like, what? <laughs> and what crazy cult did you just join? And what is this? Like, you know, Wow. and so I'm trying to explain that God has a plan for my life. And that's really how I'm going to be most happy. I need to take some time and ask him what that plan is. And uh, Skinny yeah. confirmed it. It's all legit. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah, mom's totally <laughs> persuaded. Totally. Talk to right. Skinny. So I get home. Uh, I asked the Navy for a leave of absence. They say, no, it's the Clinton administration downsizing. If you don't come back, you lose your scholarship. We're sending you a bill for $30,000 for what we've already paid. So you sure you want to take that leave of absence? I'm like, yeah. yeah. And I just thank the speed of God. He really blessed me with a, really, it was a charismatic gift of faith for those weeks to know that this is what he was asking me to do and that this is what would work out for the best. Because my parents were like, you're destroying your life. Why would you do this? You know? And they had a really good point, you know, from a mm -hmm. human perspective, but God really just gave me an assurance in my heart, which was a huge, huge gift. So anyways, I'm kind of, I'm trying to call around to all the hut builders who want nothing to do with me um, because I haven't finished college or I have the wrong background, which means because you're Catholic. And I'm like, I'm not really sold on the Catholic thing. I'm pretty flexible. <laughs> uh, and uh, this is closed door after closed door. Finally, thanks be to God, I, I got a hold of my youth minister from my time in high school. And she's like, well, Scott, have you ever heard of Net Ministries, the national evangelization teams? Now, I grew up in Egan, yeah. Minnesota, which is the next suburb over from West St. Paul, where Net's headquarters is. Yeah, I'd gone to school in West St. Paul, worked up and down Robert Street, two blocks from the Net Center, never heard of Net. And uh my youth minister is telling me like what they do. I'm like, oh, this is very much like young life, except they travel around in a van. This sounds great. Oh, and they're Catholic. That's probably a bonus. So I call <laughs> up Nets. I tell them what's going on. Can I apply? They said, uh, we filled our team six months ago. Why don't you wait a year? I said, I can't wait a year. I need to do something this year. I'll drive over and pick up an application. What do you think? 
And so I talked him into letting me apply to make a long story much shorter. Uh, I was accepted to NET the day musicians training started, started a week later. I was at NET training. And what a life-changing grace that was. Uh, NET training, I made, we had daily mass, beautiful adoration, uh, praise and worship with our teams each day. Uh, I made my first confession since my first confession, learning things that I'm sure I'd learned in my good Catholic schools, but like they're coming alive. Like how amazing this is, this faith that I've been raised in that I had no idea about or I hadn't paid any attention to. And uh, it was just a life-changing experience, those five weeks of training. And then the year, of being out on the road, sharing the gospel, giving our witness, leading small group conversations, and seeing how powerfully God would work in the lives of the junior and senior high school students we were putting retreats on uh, was an amazing, amazing year. And halfway through that year, uh, felt a real clear call from God as I was praying one day uh, that he wanted me to be his priest. And I was quite reluctant at that moment, but he, I said, God, if that's what you want, give me the desire to do it, and I will do it. And I prayed that way for the rest of my time on net and God gave me a profound desire uh, to pursue the mm -hmm. seminary. Uh, I ended up studying for the Diocese of Sioux Falls in South Dakota, uh, entered seminary the fall of uh, 1994, was ordained in the Jubilee year of 2000 for the Diocese of Sioux Falls, and has spent the last 20 years loving the gift of priesthood. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. I love <laughs> There's so many things I love about this story. I'm kind of taken with skinny right now. But um, so again, you spent time, Nat, uh, you did campus ministry. Tell us a little bit about your day job now, right? You're you're sure. still a priest of the uh, the Diocese of Sioux Falls. Yep. Uh, what, what do you do? Yeah, so today I'm the vicar for lay and clergy formation for the Diocese of Sioux Falls. So we received uh, a new bishop a year ago, February, Bishop Donald DeGrood, succeeded Bishop Paul Swain after he retired. And uh, Bishop DeGrood uh, hit the ground running, really visiting with all the priests, asking us what we need, and really taking a personal interest in all the priests. He wants to listen to our hearts, see what gifts God has raised up there, try to align those gifts with the assignments that he'll be making, etc. And uh, so I had dinner with him one day and had a great visit. Uh, the premise of the dinner was like, hey, Father Scott, I know you have lots of ideas. I'd like to hear about some of those for the diocese. We never got around to talking about any of my ideas. There was a lot of the <laughs> story of my vocation and just talking about priesthood. And it was a beautiful conversation with our spiritual father, Bishop DeGrude. And uh, three weeks later, it was on the Feast of the Annunciation uh, a year ago. He calls me up. He's like, Father Scott, here's what I'm thinking. This is eight o'clock at night. 45 minutes later, he's described the position I have now. Nice. And he's like, what do you think about that? And I said, Bishop, we had dinner together three weeks ago. Had you sent me away for three weeks and said, hey, Father Trainer, just come up with like an ideal assignment that would combine all the things that you're especially passionate about that have been especially fruitful over your 20 years of priesthood and put them all together in one kind of assignment. I said, Bishop, you just did a better job of that than I could have. And you don't know me. And it was <laughs> kind of an amazing like realization of what God was orchestrating. So uh, I work, part of my job is to oversee our wonderful discipleship and evangelization office uh, with Chris Bergwald and Eric Gallagher that uh, might be familiar to some of your listeners. They are, yeah. They're familiar great to guys. Uh, so we're the discipleship and evangelization team. And our job is really to help every parish and every school in our diocese respond to uh, the vision 
that God has entrusted to Bishop DeGruy to form a culture of lifelong Catholic missionary discipleship through God's love, not from a top-down diocesan program, but really help every parish and every school at the local level understand that call and vision, and in a discerning way, uh, make a response to it according to their uh, local parish or school. School. Man, that's that's beautiful. I love that. I'm going to hear the rhyme. You know, our, our listeners are familiar with the pastoral vision of the Archdiocese of Omaha, one mm-hmm. church encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, living mercy. And you know, as we break that down, I mean, we've we've talked about this before. Like you know, our own kind of our work. Uh, the, there's there's a lot of rhyme and similarity there. I think mm-hmm. the, the vision and passion of our of our bishops. Um, that's maybe a good jumping off point because we're we're trying to do trying to do something similar. This this kind of reawakening of helping our our grassroots, whether it be a family or a parish, schools, helping helping us rediscover our missionary identity. Mm-hmm. But there's a very particular landscape that I, you know, I made reference at the beginning of this this book from Christendom to Apostolic, uh, the Apostolic Age. There's a really particular landscape. I mean, this would always be a fun. <laughs> Uh, assignment. It would always be challenging, but there's some really interesting things. I think that you know those of us who are alive right now deal with the, this book, uh, Monsignor Shea, um, University of Mary Press. Yeah, University of Mary Press. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes. Give us a little bit of an intro here uh, to the book because it, it really is kind of the context that all of our initiatives are, are falling into right now. That's right. Uh, So this book just lays out, uh, try to give a brief summary, um, just the cultural reality that we're living in. And it contrasts a Christendom age from a secular age, or what the book calls an apostolic age. So, you know, simply a Christendom age is where, look, uh, the organization of family life, uh, civic structures, schools, institutions, uh, fraternal groups, right? In a Christendom age, all of those supporting structures of society tend to harmonize with and reinforce the mission of the church to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe what Jesus uh, commanded us and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they tend to support uh, this mission, the great commission of the church in a Christendom age. In an apostolic age or a secular age as we live in today, the fact is that uh, the institution of, of culture tend to, if a person is just drifting along with the culture, move a person further away from Christ and the church. And so there is a kind of a, a counterproductivity against the actual mission of the church, just the way that the culture is going. So a good analogy is like in a Christendom age, it's like paddling a canoe downriver. I can be, I can paddle sometimes, sometimes I can just drift along, but I'll be going where I want to go if I'm heading downriver. Uh, in an apostolic age or a secular age, if I want to make progress upriver, if that's where I'm headed and the river is working against me because it's a secular age and not a Christendom age, uh, I need sustained, intense effort to make headway. And that's a situation we find ourselves in today. So uh, the book talks about the, the truth that we are presently no longer in a Christendom age, but rather in an age of apostolic mission. And it has this central concept of a ruling imaginative vision. How do I see the world? And it's, a, it's like a narrative. What's the story that I have inside myself through which I interpret the events and the people and the situations that I encounter in my life? 
we all have to have a story that we tell ourselves into which our different experiences are incorporated. And in a Christendom age, that ruling imaginative vision is going to be informed about the Christian revealed truth about God, about creation, and about the human person in relationship mm -hmm. with God and creation. In a secular age, we have a different narrative. It's a different story claim about humanity and about the world and about how we're meant to live our life and whether there's a God or not, et cetera. And so um, one of the, I think, brilliant parts that the book presents is that that ruling imaginative vision, relatively few people have very consciously adopted this. It's really just part and parcel of the air that we breathe. And so the air that we breathe in an apostolic mission age is not in harmony with the Christian truth about God, about the human person, about creation, and how, as human people, we flourish in relationship to God and the world. So um, it's the real, there's a different, so that's a brief overview. We can go into a lot more detail, but I don't want to, I just go on and on for hours if you don't stop. Yeah. Well, so let me, let me ask a question, right? So you, we just lay out that, that landscape. We're now in a, a, a new secular or apostolic age. Again, mm -hmm. I, I love, I think, I think of the Pope Francis quote. So, you know, this is not just an age of change, but it's a change of the ages. Yes. We're, we're experiencing this transition writ large now in our, in our culture. What is the church like in, in, an, in an apostolic age? And then what are the particular, the, the particular temptations and pitfalls that the church is facing in this transition of ages. Yeah, so chapter two of the book makes this really important point that it's, because it, the book is not like hearkening back to, geez, if we were just back in the 14th century, everything would be great. It's right, not- exactly. Or the, the 50s or whatever. Yeah, pick your age where you think, oh, that was the golden age and everything was just great and whatever. It's not that at all. It, it's very clear that there are distinct advantages and disadvantages. Uh, you know, gifts and challenges, opportunities and challenges, both in a Christendom age and in an apostolic age, right? So like in a Christendom, Christendom age, uh, Christen, Christianity leaves its mark on education and the law and government and art and architecture. And all of those things that form the culture tend to reinforce the mission of the church. Uh, so under Christendom, you know, slavery was abolished universities began, the parliament system came together. You have the great heritage of like the Gothic cathedrals, those kinds of things, right? And then the medicine, orphanages, social support systems, on and on. All yeah. the things, right? Which are great, great advantages. However, in a Christendom age, there are also challenges. Um, it's very easy because this is just kind of like the culture is tending towards Christ and the church to actually be a very lukewarm person. You can be baptized, but not really have made a personal commitment to follow Christ. You're just drifting along like a dead thing in the water, you know? Right. Uh, and so lukewarmness is a thing. Um, there can be uh, a temptation to hypocrisy because it's now in a Christendom age, more socially advantageous to be a believer as opposed mm -hmm. to not being a believer. I want to stop there because that concept, I mean, if, you know, if anybody's listening and struggling to imagine, it's like, well, are we really, is a Christendom age really gone? Just reflect how odd it sounds to have, to, to be a person of faith and to have that be a social 
and political advantage. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some people know if you know anything about kind of like the 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 Spanish, the the Reconquista, and all of that part of like Isabel and Ferdinand came in, and they were they were so insistent upon uh, Catholic faith being this criteria for leadership and promotion that that people started to fake it, which is, you know, that that people wanted to, like, it was cool to be Catholic. (laughs) I have a hard time saying that out loud because it's, it's, that's not really my experience. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, when you have the uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, I I don't know if it was her, no, it was, I think it was Dianne Feinstein saying of a future Supreme Court appointee, oh, yeah. the dogma is strong in her. That was not a compliment. That was not <laughs> no. a way to get ahead in the judicial system, right? No, no, that was, yeah, it was cause for suspicion. Yeah. Sorry, I just want I'm to stop you there because it's it's just some of the aspects of a Christendom age are so foreign to our experience right now. Mm-hmm. We sometimes try, you know, to recreate a, a Christendom age, uh, we, you know, little neighborhoods and trying to, you know, niche out our, our parishes, but that's, that's just painfully sometimes not the world we're living in anymore. So in an apostolic age, on the other side of the coin there, there's definitely, again, advantages and disadvantages. So in an apostolic age, there's lots of room for really responding in a radical way to the call of Christ. Like it really stands out. I have to make a very conscious choice to be saying yes to growing in relationship with Christ in the church. So there's a kind of dynamism and attractiveness of conviction that's evident in people who are making that choice, right? Uh, There's more of a sense of adventure uh, because we're the underdog in a secular age. A person of faith is uh, the underdog. Uh, There is, uh, but there's also, of course, the challenges. Uh, There's the constant pressure just to conform, to get along, go along to get along. I'm not going to stand up for, you know, when my school is encroaching on Sundays or on the night that's set aside for religious education with a million other activities. I don't want my child to lift, uh, miss out in the way I might be tempted to think they're missing out for this or that activity. So, you know, we don't have to be associated. Like, I mean, we go to mass most of the time. Uh, going to the tournament this weekend won't be that big a deal. Yeah, you know, I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be weird. Right. Yep. <laughs> Too late for that. But let me ask. I mean, I love the challenge. Yes, challenges in both ages, uh, extreme fruitfulness in both ages. Mm-hmm. If we can make this really like, like it or not, we are re-entering, and maybe we can talk a little bit about Fulton Sheen and his kind of like his his sense of prophecy on this, because because we've been here for a lot longer than we've been talking about it. Mm-hmm. But Father, could you speak to people? Like, I want to talk to people's hearts right now. So much of this change feels like loss and failure. Mm. We, we, we see our schools shrinking. We see our parishes shrinking. We see these kind of cultural values that used to be shared, and those things are diminishing. Like, that this is, I know this is unfair, it's a little bit like, why did Jesus let this happen? Like, why are we in a change of age? You can know from history, okay, there's an extreme and beautiful fruitfulness in an apostolic age, but it feels like loss and it feels like failure. What is the Lord doing? Yeah, well, that's that's a big question for sure. Um, that's but, why we pay you the big bucks, Father. Thank you. So 
I think a couple things. One is uh, I can dwell on that question. Actually, just dwelling on that question: Why is this happening? Woe is me! Loss, loss, loss. That itself is a tactic of the enemy to sideline us, to give us resignation, maybe turn us into bunker Catholics. We're like, I don't know, the world's going to hell. I'm just going to seal the thing. I'm going to come back after the apocalypse. Whatever. Those are all temptations and they're tactics of the enemy. On the other hand, and I remember this even in talking to like way back in 1992. So we've become a lot more secularized even in that time frame from 1992 to 2021 for sure. But I remember talking to my friends who were on net teams that went out to like uh, LA and Santa Barbara and San Francisco that were way further down the secular pathway right mm-hmm. then we were traveling my team was traveling on canada and the midwest and you know yeah it was yeah la to south dakota was a good 30 year time warp <laughs> yeah thank you that's right but one of the advantages in that much more advanced or obviously secular environment is that you could just have really direct conversations with people you know mm-hmm. and just kind of go there because secularity is so in your face that you can just be hey like let me tell you about jesus christ And there's actually a number and a growing number of people who have never actually heard the truth about Jesus or the gospel. And when they hear it for the first time, as opposed to kind of growing up in a family of faith and thinking uh, that's all hypocritical and not really a thing, been there, done that, not interested anymore. You have a lot more people who are just open to like, who is this Jesus guy? And what do you say? You know, they're really open. You can have a much more direct and blunt conversation. It's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's the the novelness and the newness of the gospel isn't lost on them. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, you can always ask the question, how's that working out for you? For someone who's like really into a secular worldview, mm-hmm. uh, a secular ruling imaginative vision, um, there is more and more readily evident the the dissatisfaction with that. Um, and you can see people even with all the material prosperity. Are people really happier? No, 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 they're not. Do people have a greater sense of their identity and their dignity? Or do they have a greater sense of anxiety and insecurity? Mm -hmm. Um, Do they have a clear sense that life is an adventure or does life seem more like a drudgery for people? And those questions become more evident, the more sort of secularized, more things come in our daily experience. And in, by contrast, the proposition of this adventure of love that Jesus has called us to is very, very appealing uh, in a secular age. It really speaks to the desires of human hearts, which no matter how the culture has changed, human hearts do not change. Our nature is the same, the nature God created us with. So Father, let's talk a little bit about, you hinted at this, but let's talk a little bit. I mean, this is more than just a nice history lesson. Let's talk about like the the kind of practical pastoral application of this. And, And you hinted, I forget. We, we, I think maybe we mentioned the word bunker. I got this image of like yeah. <laughs> a small Catholic family or community. It's like, all right, we're sealing ourselves off. We're gonna ha- we're gonna have some kids, and we'll see you on the other side. Yeah. How should we respond to this scenario? Um, to to the situation we find ourselves in. Um, well, we can respond uh, as Jesus responded. So mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, we can read about his. Uh, mission in as he takes up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter four. And what have I come to do to bring release to captives, healing to the blind, to proclaim good news to the poor, uh, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim a year of favor to the Lord. 
So you have healing, you have uh, spiritual liberation, you have the Jubilee year, the restoration of all things. This is what Jesus came to do. This is his mission. Mm -hmm. The spirit of the Lord is upon him to accomplish these things. Yeah. Okay. And how did he go about it? How he went about it was to, uh, was a discipleship model. It's like, what's the model we're following It's what Jesus did. He gathered the disciples to himself and he had Peter, James, and John that were the most, uh, the closest core to him. And then he had the other apostles, the group of 12 around them. Then we hear about the 72 that were another category outside of them. And he intentionally and deeply shared life with them. You know, come and see. Rabbi, we want to know where you're saying. Come and see. Come and follow mm -hmm. me. I want you to share life with me. And so he, it, it, that's what Jesus did. He formed those discipleship relationships. And then he sent them out two by two to give as a gift what they had received as a gift. And this, I think, is the call for us in an apostolic age to choose ourselves and with our family and with our friends who are like-minded and have received this gift of awakening in faith to cling closely to Jesus, to pursue that deep relationship with Jesus every day, and then uh, be docile when he sends us out. Like, God, who in my life can I give as a gift this gift I'm receiving from you? And I love like what Focus does. I know you served many years with Focus, Jim, uh, with their depth chart. Uh, who are the people who don't know it yet, have not yet uh, come alive in faith, who have not made a decision to follow Christ? They're in my win category. Who in my life is a win? And what can I, what can I do intentionally to share the faith that I've received with them? That looks very different than, hey, who among my friends, look, they've decided to organize their life for Christ. They're an intentional disciple. But uh, they need help to grow in that relationship. Well, that's my build category. What can I do in those relationships to help build them up in faith if I'm a step or two uh, of more experienced in growing in relationship with God myself? How can we serve each other in doing that? So to have that mindset, hey, where is a person at in their relationship with God? And then God, what are you asking of me as I uh, grow in my relationship with you every day, what are you asking of me to do to serve the people that you've placed in my life? And that doesn't mean I need to pack up the family and go to Central Africa. This means like who in my daily routine, God, you show me who they are and what they need, and you show me what you're asking me to do. So that's the opposite of the bunker. It's like, hey, God has uh, given me a gift to be uh, gifts to be given as a gift. God, you show me who and where and give me the grace to take advantage of that opportunity when you uh, point it out to me. I'm thinking as, as you talk about that, I wonder if some of our listeners are thinking, it's like, okay, only problem is I don't know if I know anybody who needs healing, who isn't already Christian. Now, I would want to challenge that. I don't know if that's actually true, but what would you say to someone who's like, I don't actually know anybody who's not already uh, or already a, a disciple of Jesus or so would see, right? Who I, I only associate with people who go to my church. How do you, it's like, I don't have, I don't have any relationships outside of my little faith community. How do you get started? Well, uh, a couple things. So as, as is discussed in from Christendom to apostolic mission, for example, uh, if you have people who are awake in the faith, who are like hot coals, right? Mm -hmm. You in, in an apostolic age, we need to gather those coals together and dump fire on them. So they are a blazing fire. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So uh, even if you think everyone in your circle of relationships is like, oh no, they're a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. Every last one of us can become more intensely committed to him and grow in uh, the depth of our relationship with him. So maybe that's the invitation. And especially in a world full of soggy logs, right? Uh, In a secular age, you got a lot of like waterlogged wood out there, right? If people are logs, there's a lot of soggy logs out there. The only way that changes is to build a very intense fire, not to take oh a coal that's kind of lukewarm and kind of spread it out because there's a little light, mm-hmm. a little warmth. Nope, gather together, make it very intense because that intensity, so instead of going wide, going deep, that intensity will actually be the most transformative thing to help people who are taking a little step closer to actually dry out and eventually be able to catch fire. So um, everyone, in fact, uh, knows people in, in their life uh, who they have a gift to give to help them take another step closer to Christ in the church. Guaranteed, guaranteed. Yeah. So in Bishop DeGroote's vision for our diocese, this idea of lifelong Catholic missionary discipleship is everyone, no matter your age or condition, has a gift that someone else in your sphere of relationships needs to receive. And you can just ask God to make that clear and simple and easy. That's a great starting point. I appreciate sometimes we assume it's like, oh, I mean, they go to my parish. I'm sure they, you know, they love the Lord. I'm sure they've got this relationship. A a good kind of gut check on this is like, do I feel comfortable talking about my prayer, talking about my relationship with Jesus with this person? And if it gives you pause, Mm. that might be a sign that you're not living in that depth and that intensity of that that fire and that christian community well at least one that's not not intense enough to be able to to uh dry out and uh set those those soggy logs aflame mm-hmm. Amen. what does this look like we've been talking kind of like at a smaller level as individuals what does this begin to look like living in an apostolic age what does it begin to look like for a parish yeah so uh, maybe i can tell you a story um one of the things, I, so I'm a, I'm a priest of 20 years, uh, roughly a third of that I've spent on college campuses, roughly a third of that I've been involved in seminary priestly formation as a rector and a formator at a seminary, and uh, the other third doing other stuff, okay? So I've, I've thought for years, like, okay, the, the truth of our faith, the God that we believe in, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who made everything out of nothing by the power of their word. God's self-revelation through scripture and tradition, the teaching of the church by which God's self-revelation can be known with certainty without addition or deletion or confusion in every age, the life of the sacraments, the communion of the saints, the witness of men and women in every state of life, every age and occupation across 2,000 years and every culture around the globe, right? These are our heritage as Catholics. That is powerful. Our faith is powerful, mind-blowingly powerful the reality of our faith. Then on the other side, where the rubber hits the road, even among mass going Catholics, like I want a little like a mini cam from the presider's point of view to see just the like body language and facial expressions in pew land, right? This is not like we're encountering the God of the universe and Jesus Christ who suffered and died and rose again and pours out the Holy Spirit for us again anew in this mass. Like this is not what's being expressed. In Pewland, right? Mm-hmm. So what, not, what's the disconnect? Not judging by your face. Yeah. Not judging by your face. What's the disconnect between the reality of our faith and where the rubber hits the road in 
people's real lives. And I think there are eight key elements, and this is not a theory, uh, but really from my experience, especially in my five years as a chaplain at the University of South Dakota. So just to give a little context for your listeners, when I went there, when I was first assigned there, um, the eight students who had been involved in the Newman Center had most had all graduated. So for the first semester, daily mass was me and like two dust bunnies in the corner. Okay, it was shut down. And uh, every now and again, so I'd be out on campus meeting people and someone would wander in and be like, hey, Father, I think God's doing this in my life. And that's great. Uh, why don't you come by? You're not the only one. They kind of look around. They're like, I think I'm the only one. <laughs> I know, yes. yeah. but trust me, you're not. <laughs> uh, so five years later, with four years of focus on campus also, thanks be to God, um, we had 86 uh, weekly Bible studies going with 480 plus students involved in those weekly Bible studies. Mm -hmm. uh, we had daily mass attendance, 110, 120 students regularly at daily mass. Yeah, we daily, sent a number of guys to the seminar. Not Sunday. Not Sunday mass, daily mass. Yeah. Uh, you know, daily adoration. We had guys going out to the seminary, women discerning religious life. Dozens of those students grew up to be focused missionaries themselves. It was the new evangelization actually happening. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's against that context that I'm going to talk about what, what are these missing elements from the power of our faith to where the rubber hits the road and kind of the, the center, uh, I call it the transmission for the new evangelization. The center uh, drive shaft of that is really taking interest in a person's experience of God. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your experience of God. I love asking that question in Walmart checkout lines, on airplanes, whatever. When people are like, are you like a pastor or something? Uh, when Father <laughs> Scott goes to Walmart. I dressed a little funny. Yeah. And uh, like, I'll introduce myself. And if I have any time, that's the question I'll ask them. I'll be like, hey, so yeah, this is who I am. I'm a Catholic priest. I believe in God. He is amazing and he loves us. Uh, tell me, what's it, could you tell me about your experience of God? I'm really interested. Okay. And I used to ask people like, oh, do you go to a church, like a church? And I found a certain people were a little defensive about that. And then I stumbled onto this question. And I just find it's so delightful that people are really willing to talk about their experience of God. And they're like, wow, no, I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. And I get all kinds of answers from, well, I'm a militant atheist to, oh, I'm Mother Teresa, you know, and everything in between. Yeah. Uh, but it's I very, very that. interesting. And the I reason love, I in love an, that question. In the reason in an apostolic age that is such an important question is before I start to try to do something or accomplish something with this person, uh, I want to know where they're at. So you guys have beautifully developed in Archdiocese of Omaha articulations of uh thresholds of conversion, Sherry Waddell's, and then beyond the de decision for Christ. What does that look like as a beginning disciple or growing disciple, etc.? I want to know where the person's at, kind of locate them on that uh, pathway of discipleship so that I can relate, I can create a favorable environment in my interaction with them to receive what can only come from God. Only God can change hearts and minds and move a person closer to himself. But I relationally, if I understand and take interest in where they are, can relate to them in a way uh, that favors, creates a favorable environment for them to receive that grace from God. So if you blow that up to a parish level, which was your good question for me at a parish level. I can do parish programming like, hey, what have I heard about? What's out there that's a popular program or a fruitful program that some other parish did, some other diocese did. And I can try to bring that in. And it's good to have good programs, super. But 
think about it a different way. What if I had a way of listening to where are my parishioners actually at, not presuming that they're all mm -hmm. dedicated disciples? Because I'll guarantee you 20 years of priesthood, it's a hasty presumption to say that the majority of people at Sunday Mass have made a personal commitment to follow Christ, like to arrange the stuff their life around Jesus. And I can prove it. You can ask any of my DREs and the tension they get when something the church is asking of them for, I don't know, confirmation prep or something uh, is conflicting with a secular commitment, the soccer tournament, the dance recital or whatever it might be. Right. That's a that's a telling moment. Anyways. Yeah. So you can't hastily presume like, oh, of course, everyone's uh, on fire, spiritually multiplying disciple of Jesus Christ here. I actually want to take real interest in of the people who are showing up. Where are they at? And then I want to tailor the programming of the parish to meet the needs of that. So if you just take the simple win, build, send model of the depth chart in focus, uh, what is our programming that's actually win programming in my parish? Have we thought mm -hmm. of it from that side? Or do yeah. we just assume, because I think like 90% of the great, we're, we're in the golden age of Catholic resources for programs. <laughs> Thanks be to God, we are. Yeah. Uh, I think most of those programs are aimed at a person who is on the other side of having made a, a decision for Christ. They're assuming a discipleship reality when I think the majority of people are actually in a pre-discipleship or win reality. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And the problem is, I mean, someone who has not made a decision for Jesus, if they haven't fallen in love yet, they actually mm -hmm. don't really want to know the backstory. They, exactly. They don't have any interest or energy to do it. It's water off yeah. a duck's back. No, I, I tell the same story about like, you know, my, my lovely wife, her junior high, high school sport was competitive jump roping. Now, I didn't even know competitive jump roping was a thing. <laughs> I certainly had no interest in it whatsoever until I fell in love with her. And once I fell in love with her, I was like, tell me about competitive jump roping. And I suddenly became a fan, slightly altruistic motives. But I was, I was actually sincerely interested because it was connected to her and this person that I loved. Um, and I, I couldn't have cared less beforehand. And, and if, you, if, you're, if you are a DRE, a catechist, a pastor, a youth minister, a parent, and you're frustrated by the reality that there's these people around you don't seem to care, Maybe that's why. Maybe they haven't had that encounter yet. That's awesome. Father, you, you listed off eight. Do you want to keep going? Oh, sure. I can listen. You can you can pull the string on any one of them. But so that's that's like the drive shaft, right? The it's the most important thing in found, taking in an foundation. interest, right? Taking yeah. an interest in people's spiritual experience. Where, yeah, what's your experience of relationship with God and listening to that with some wisdom like the thresholds of conversion so I can right. understand what the person's real need is, okay? So right. these other elements, uh, the foundation of the elements is first of all, personal prayer, relational prayer. Um, mm -hmm. I have to be growing in my relationship with God before I can really effectively help someone else do that. So I need to learn. And this is these are all like areas of needed formation and mm -hmm. anything that can, anyone can do in any of these areas to be uh, offered greater formation or receive greater formation is going to help connect the power of our faith to where the rubber hits the road in real people's lives and the situations of their lives. So relational prayer, uh, discernment of spirits. So mm -hmm. I can recognize as I'm listening to, hey, what's your experience of God? In whatever the person shares with me, what is from God to encourage them to keep paying attention to that, to receive that? And what is clearly not from God and to 
if it's possible, encourage them to set that aside or to push back against that, right? So that's the activity yeah. of discernment of spirits. The more I grow in discernment of spirits, the more I can help someone just in conversation um, benefit from that wisdom as well. Uh, the kerygma, of course. I wanna, in, I'm in the Walmart checkout line and I'm having this conversation. I want to, I want to proclaim the saving name of Jesus. Now, I might not even have time in the checkout line to give, you know, the four spiritual laws. God created us to be in friendship with himself. Man forfeited that friendship through sin, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him might not die, but have everlasting life. And we're called to a personal, every person needs to make a choice to receive or reject that gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm not even going to have time to do that, but I want to take something. And because I've paid attention to where they're at in their experience of God, even if they're just a militant atheist, what can I take like a scribe of the kingdom to bring out the best of what is new and what is old, something that I can offer to them in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ that will help them where they're at, perhaps take or be open to taking the next step that will be best for them, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of familiarity and um, creativity or adaptability with the kerygma, the basic gospel message that I can bring that, inject that into really any encounter according to what the person in front of me can really benefit from. Right, not in an artificial way, having yeah. already listened with a lens of the spiritual journey. Yep, exactly. Beautiful, okay, what are we on? Is that number four? That's number four, right? That's number four. So even, so if all those things are happening, I'm taking interest in your experience of God, I'm growing in prayer, I can, I know how to listen to your experience with some discernment, I can share something of the goodness of the gospel with you in our interaction. If those things are happening, great things are happening. Like we are light years ahead. So thanks be to yeah. God. But there are still obstacles that hinder people from saying a, to taking that next step closer to Christ and the church. And these other four elements are aimed at easing and taking away those obstacles. Uh, so the first one is servant leadership, which is actually kind of woven up in um what I've already been describing, that sure. a servant leadership or situational leadership, it's called in the uh, business world, is I want to adapt my leadership style to your need. Uh, not, I'm not going to lead you just the way I prefer to. I'm not just going to go back to my three favorite things over and over again. I want to, I want to lead you the way that you need to be led. So if you have someone who's a, a beginner, who's super enthusiastic, but doesn't know what to do, they need a coach who can say step one, step two, step three. They don't need another cheerleader. So if I'm by nature a cheerleader and not like a one, two, three, three-step guy kind of guy, I need to become the three-step kind of guy to help that person who's already enthused, you know, yeah. versus a person who, look, they've done this, they've forgotten more about this than I'll ever know, but they just have no enthusiasm for it anymore. They're just burnt out, right? Kind of yeah, the jaded, experienced person. Uh, they need a cheerleader. And if I'm yeah. not naturally a cheerleader, if I'm a servant leader, I need to become a cheerleader to help that person. So adapting whatever I'm proposing to a person, what I'm talking about with them, the way I'm talking about it with them, what book I'd put in their hand, what event I would invite them to, who else I'd want to introduce them to, all these yeah. relational things I can do. I want to adapt those things, not according to my preferences, but to what I see they need, right? Well, so that mentality so of servant leadership, very, very important. And this is so Jesus. I mean, watching yes. the difference between the way he interacts with the Syrophoenician woman to the apostles to Nicodemus. I mean, it's slightly scandalous. Like he just goes after Nicodemus, right? And he's like, come on, dude, like you've been to seminary. You should get this. And yeah. he, he doesn't hesitate to talk to people differently based off where they're at. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 
and it works. I mean, Jesus, it's, it's effective. And, and he, I think he gives us that as, as an example. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, that's number five, first obstacle removing. You're my brother from another mother, Jim. Like, right. So <laughs> Jesus smash mouth with the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, whited sepulchers, you, you yeah, corrupt tombs, you versus his amazing mercy. Like has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Right. But yeah. Whatever Jesus is doing and saying, we know for certainty is the most loving thing for that person in that moment, because he understands who they are and what they need. And he's acting for their greatest good, because that's what love does. And but it looks like really different things from situation to situation. You know, that's amazing. I love that. So servant leadership, uh, then human virtues. I know I love to teach people how to pray. It's my passion for 20 years in a relational way and have that real growing encounter with God and growing intimacy with God. Um, look, sometimes the reason people don't pray, they don't have a really good habit of prayer is not because they don't know how to pray or don't want to pray. They may know, have both of those things in spade. They're just a disorganized mess. And the time to pray doesn't magically tackle them on the sidewalk and drag them into the chapel. Yeah. That's not a spiritual problem. That's not a theological problem. That's just a human virtue problem. I need to become yeah. more organized and more disciplined. And so formation in human virtue because grace builds on nature if my nature is out of whack uh yeah. grace is going to be hindered in its fruitfulness well and i think you see that i'll give a little shout out um i got dragged into a exodus 90 group Ooh. and whether it's exodus 90 or a whole bunch of other programs like that that the intentional effort towards discipline and routine and a rediscovery of asceticism i think those are attractive and bearing fruit because well, I mean, I'll just speak for myself or some of the guys. It's really easy to kind of live like a, a laxadaisical, just kind of floating downstream. And it, it's easy to become a slob. It's easy to just kind of, and there is something about discipline and excellence and her, her, human virtue that is still very attractive to us. Um, and, and we know it's true. So, okay. So... Yeah. So that's six. Servant leadership, six, and, and Human virtues. Uh, virtues. Uh, number seven over there is uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Both the ordinary gifts that we talk about at confirmation and the extraordinary gifts in Corinthians and elsewhere uh, mm-hmm. uh, of those gifts. We need to know what those gifts are. We need to ask for them and we need to put them to use when they are giving, including miracles and healing and prophecy and words of knowledge and those uh, gratuitous graces, as St. Thomas Aquinas calls them, or the charismatic gifts as well. Why? Because in a secular age, the proclamation of the gospel, it needs manifestations of divine power to, as a rhetorical device for the uh, secular mindset of the audience, to believe the truth about Jesus Christ as being proclaimed. So the reason signs and wonders accompany the proclamation of the gospel is as a divine, uh, like proof of believability. Yeah, it's uh, our of, certificate of authenticity. Certi- there you go. From, That's our great, he- yeah. from our heavenly Father. Yes, Amen. And so uh, there's a lot of room to grow in knowing what those gifts are, asking for them, and putting them to use where they're given. And the last element, uh, if even all those seven of those things are happening, great things are happening. The last element is really um, healing and deliverance, and maybe a specification mm-hmm. of those gifts of Holy Spirit, but. You know, with family life being the way it is, with um, the damage that's caused through addictions uh, in our culture mm-hmm. today, just there's a lot of wounded people there. Like we're all we're all wounded in our own way, but 
the brokenness, I would say, especially in family life, uh, can be a real stumbling block for people to take uh, the next step, to say yes, to take the next step closer to Christ in the church. And sometimes that human brokenness of whatever sort, the enemy really exploits, and the person has an increased demonic uh, oppressiveness in their life that calls for the ministry of deliverance. And these are things that are proper to all the baptized. We're not talking about exorcism, which is only for the bishop and his exorcist, but just really uh, bringing the authority of Christ to bear to set captives free. Um, mm -hmm. This should be a much more ordinary part of our uh, Catholic and parish life and our family lives, uh, frankly. So those eight elements, uh, when they work together, what, we, what I've seen in my years of priesthood is that the more that those are formed, the more that those are uh, present in a local community of faith, any of those elements, they work together mm -hmm. to really bring the power of God in whom we believe and the church in which we live to bear in a transformative way in people's real lives where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, Father, I love it, but I don't want to burst your bubble here. I feel like you're just plagiarizing from Acts of the Apostles. <laughs> I feel, I'm like, who do you think you are? I read that. I know your source. <laughs> oh, you got me. No one's ever busted me on that. That's true. I've not yeah, actually thought of that, know, but that really, is right on. Really, but it's exciting. I mean, you paint a picture of the church alive. And we've both been blessed to see it again and again and again. And not just incidentally in places like Nebraska and South Dakota. I've seen it in Boston. I, you know, I've seen it in Berkeley. Like I, I've seen the church come alive in the most, because I still think the East and West Coast are a good 30 years ahead of us yes. in the race uh, to secular pagan culture. Uh, and yet the gospel still works there. Yeah. The the, and I think it's maybe hope for those of you who are, I, at least again, maybe I'm just speaking to myself here, but when the change, this change of age feels like a loss, when it feels like failure, when when the beauty and the cultural richness is, uh, riches of the church that feel like they're just being lost and slipping away, there is something beautiful and exciting here. And it's not that we're trying to, to let those things go, but embracing the times that we've been given, the call we've been given, it's beautiful. It's exciting. It's fruitful. Mm -hmm. um, and let's not, let's not get stuck in some silly sentimentality where we cling to something that's honestly no longer working. Hey, can I tell you a story uh, about the, the transmission? And this is, uh, again, I'm still thinking, I loved your question about like, what does this look like? So individually, but what does this look like at the level of a parish or our diocese or, you know, a community of faith? I was uh, talking about that transmission, those elements with the Office of Evangelization in the Archdiocese of Denver when I was running the seminary out there. They did, a, I'd had a like in service with them for a day. Wonderful, amazing people uh, doing great work out in Denver mm -hmm. the years I was out there. And uh so we're talking about this and at lunch, uh, one of the people said, Father, do you actually ask people that? Like, tell me about your experience of God. I'm like, oh yeah. And I was telling these stories of conversations I've been in and just how delightful, amazing they are. No matter what the response you get, it's always really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. But you know, the response I get most is, well, Father, I used to be Catholic. Mm -hmm. I used to be Catholic. And if we have any time at all, if I have any time with all that person, I'm like, would you tell me about that? I'm really interested. Like, how did you lose touch with the church? And they have a lot of different stories. 
And some of the stories I'm like, wow, yeah, I don't know if I'd be Catholic today if I went through that. I'm so sorry, you know. On the other hand, sometimes it's like, really? Like you've abandoned the Eucharist and confession and all that we have as Catholics because of that? Really? Like it's hard to hard to take, but it's it's their experience, you know. <laughs> so uh, I was like, yeah, I, I I get a lot of I used to be Catholic, and what happens is that whatever the cause, uh, father was a jerk to me in confession, or I don't like the music, or no one came to visit grandma when she was in the hospital before she died, or, you know, like whatever the cause, they get upset and they stop going to church. And then there's a crossroads. So a thousand different reasons with a thousand different people, but they have an intersection of this moment that sounds something like, so I wasn't going to church so often. Then I realized like, what difference does it make if I go or not? And who would know the difference? And that just speaks this lack of connection in the community. And I would say in most parishes, that's probably true. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if a person was, uh, I don't know, a top donor, someone might be like, hey, after six months when the financials came, like, why are we down here? And you know, they're digging in like, oh, where are Bob and Jenny gone? Is anyone, they haven't given anything yeah. in the last six months. Oh, they haven't been coming for six months, right? So I was yeah. telling the story. Then uh, the director of the Office of Evangelization, he pipes up, he says, you know, my mother-in-law, my wife's mom, is a, a, a fallen away Catholic. And he starts telling this story that uh, her first cousin had passed away. She remarried a guy who wasn't Catholic. She left the Catholic church. And they go to like this Big Bob's open Bible church down in Arkansas. But Big Bob's is like 3,000 households. It's a big, mm-hmm. booming, e-free mm-hmm. church, right? And he's telling, uh, in Big Bob's open Bible church, they have uh, 200 deacons. And I was like, what does a deacon do in your non-denominational church? Like, what is that? And he was describing it to me. And this is what they do. Um, The deacon, it's kind of like a concierge at a good hotel or something. They each, each deacon has 15 families that they check in with every three weeks or so. And it could be after the church service. It could be if they bump into them at Walmart. It could be if, uh, you know, they pay them a phone call, whatever it is. But very intentionally, they reach out to their each of their 15 families about every three weeks. And to make a long story short, they basically ask, like, hey, how are you doing? Um, is there anything you need? Like, is there any way that the church can serve you? Do you have any questions? And uh, is there anything you'd like the pastor to know? And that's just a regular pattern of conversation. So when this guy's uh, mother-in-law, her second husband passed away, who comes to from the church to be with her in her bereavement is that deacon. Yeah. And the deacon knows this is where it's like a concierge. He knows on the back end, like, oh, here's the group that will cook the meals, does the meal train. And here's the group that will run your errands. And here's a group that will come in and clean for you while you're in this period of grief. Here's a group that will uh, give you a ride if you need a ride somewhere, whatever it is. Like they have all those good service groups, like a good woman parish would have. But she has the relationship with the one person who knows all that stuff on the back end. And he's just having this conversation that he's had with her in a million other times that weren't this dramatic or difficult. Mm-hmm. So there's real trust. There's real uh, friendship going on there. And then he just goes back and is like, oh, you know, Barbara here, she's her second husband passed away. Here's what she needs. Do, do, do. So Barbara doesn't have to call the parish and be like, oh, is there someone who could help me out with the meal? Or, you know, it's just yeah. there. It's just there. Yeah, and so- think about the connectedness uh, of her like she's never going to leave that church because she has been cared for and taken interest in as a person 
-hmm. habitually by her Big Bob's Open Bible Church. So I wonder, in an apostolic age, if you talk to anyone who's actively, I'm 49 years old, if you talk to anyone my age and younger who's actively involved in their parish or in their Catholic faith, and you start digging in, like, why are you involved and you're not one of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, nuns, mm -hmm. it always comes down to that personal investment. There's this person or a series of people at different moments in my life or a group of people that took, it was a relationship. And it was in the context of that relationship that this person has flourished in the faith and made the commitment that they have today to Jesus and to the church. So going back to um, listening to what is God doing and what's your experience of God? What if Catholic parishes had uh, 200 deacons? You know, I'm sure in your work, I know in my work, we're encouraging past uh, pastors to come up with a leadership team, someone they can vary a group, a small group of people they can meet with regularly and intentionally. So this thing is very scalable. Like I, I do a lot of work with uh, the Institute for Priestly Formation. And we talk about the pastor, the priest in the parish is meant to be a discerning presence in the midst of the parish family, listening to the hearts of the people to see what God is raising up and mm -hmm discerning that to, to see where is God leading our uh, our parish family. And so par pastors kind of balk at that. They're like, well, I have 3,000 families. How can I listen to every one of my families? Right. I was just pastor of a parish with 800 families to go to visit their house for dinner one night, doing that six nights a week. It would take me a couple of years to get all their houses. You know, mm -hmm. how can they do that? Well, think about this. If we had a platoon of visitors or concierges or whatever you want to call these people, ambassadors, who, missionary yeah, disciples, <laughs> missionary disciples, who whose mission, whose uh, particular apostolate is, yes. yep, I'm going to go. Uh, I have my group of families in a very non-obtrusive way. I just invite like, hey, because I'm asking ever since I had this conversation, I'm asking dedicated Catholics, how many times have you had an interaction like that with someone from your parish that wasn't a capital campaign? Ooh. And they kind of turn their head one way and they're like, well, Father, that's never happened. I've been a leader in my parish for 30 years. That's never happened. And then they kind of turn their head their way. Like, how is it possible that that's never happened? What the heck? You know? So what if we had that habit of a platoon of people that's going out and basically asking that question on a regular basis? Mm -hmm. And if you have 200 of those people running around to your 3000 households, you need another 20 of them. Another, I'm sorry, you need another 15, sorry, another, how many you need? another eight of eight people to check in on the 20 people uh, on the, I'm sorry, on the 200 people, right? My math's all messed up. Sorry. You need another uh, 15 people to check in on the 200 people. Then that 15 people can be your expanded leadership team. So really with only two degrees of separation, you have a systematic way of listening to your parishioners experience of God. Like what's going on? Yeah. What, how are you doing? Is there anything you need? How can we serve you? Do you have any questions? Is there anything you think fathers should know? And I can think how many, oh, I used to be Catholics, would still be Catholic, if in the moment where they were losing connection to the church, they had this kind of investment. Yeah. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I am so angry. You know what that father trainer said in his homily? Like, I can't even walk into that church. I'm so angry at him. I'm going to spit nails at that man. And the deacon or the visitor or the ambassador, they don't have to figure that out. They don't have to fix that. All they have to do is build a bridge, say, oh, I'm yeah. so sorry you're going through that. You know, I know Father Scott would like to talk to you, visit with you about that. Could I please help you set up a meeting with him? Mm -hmm. 
how many yeah. people who today I used to be Catholic would still be in the church if they were engaged with that kind of intentional relationship. So just a bottom line on that long story yeah. in a, in a secular age, in an apostolic age, that kind of intentionality and sustained consistency in reaching out to people, engaging them relationally, taking interest in where they're at, and then gathering around them and serving them in the way that will be most helpful for them, servant leadership, to take another step closer to Christ in his church. That's what we need uh, to be flourishing in our day and not just managing decline. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. You've given us a, a great vision, really, of what, I mean, how the church can come alive and let, I mean, let the circumstances we're in, you know, think about Think about uh, Frodo from Lord of the Rings. You know, I wish the ring had ever come to me. And I think there's a there's a number of us, you know, who who might wish that we were still living in an age of Christendom, and yet we find ourselves in this this new kind of secular age, a call to be apostolic. And thank you, you've made it you've made it beautiful and hopeful. Um, really appreciate, yeah, your your being with us. Uh, thank you for everything you're doing up in up in Sioux Falls. Uh, we regularly send folks up to the uh, Broomtree Retreat Center. So for those of you who have not uh, been to Broomtree, it's a little 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 oasis of prayer uh, up in Irene, South Dakota. So, Father, any any last words as we close up here? Well, I just take I'll take as a, a few closing points. Uh, the closing points of that excellent book from Christendom to Apostolic Mission. We'll do well and we'll benefit if we understand the age that we live in. That is an apostolic age with all the opportunities and the challenges that it presents, just taking a, a clear and uh, wisdom-informed look at the age we're in. That we can see the workings of the Holy Spirit, like to be on the lookout for and to notice what is God doing in me, in my family, in my parish, and to gather those kills together and to tend to them with care. And then to cooperate with where God is leading, not to take the fullest responsibility, like we got to figure it out and fix this, but to trust that God wants to enliven and transform lives and families and parishes much more than we do. And he knows how to do it. Our job is to follow his lead. Beautiful. Folks, if you want uh, to check out the book, we're going to put it in the show notes. Uh, you can find the show notes at equip.archomaha.org. Uh, there you can subscribe to the blog. So every time we drop a new episode, you'll get that. You'll get the show notes, uh, plus other goodies and uh, articles that we send out with the blog. Uh, you can find us on all of the major podcasting platforms, EquipCast, all one word. Father Scott, thank you for, for being with us. Thanks, thanks for what you do. You bet. Hey, can I make a, a quick plug? Please. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Chris Bergwald, who's familiar to some of your listeners, and I, we put together a little... 10 minute video as an introduction to each of the chapters of this excellent book. So if you're doing individual study or a small group study and you want a little help to get into each chapter, uh, there's so much to unpack in there. You can go to sfcatholic.org vision, sfcatholic.org vision, and you will see resources uh, for a little introduction from Christendom to Apostolic Mission right there. Fantastic. We'll link to that in the show notes so it's really easy to find. And yeah, that'd be great for small groups, families, parish leadership teams. This would be a yeah, great resource to spark a good discussion. All right. Thanks for being with us, Father. Thanks, everybody. 